fellow weirdos, and welcome to Horror Through Her Eyes. You've got the Amateur Destroyer here, and we're actually missing the Taminator uh, because she's fallen ill, unfortunately. But I'm here, and I've got some friends to help me out, fill fill in some gaps for me. And actually, Tammy's really sad that she's not here to hang out with them, too. Um, but it's going to make my job a lot easier, so thanks, everybody. Um, we're ready to explore the twisted world of horror and prove that girls enjoy horror just as much as the guys do. So tonight we're going to be reviewing the 2007 comedy horror Teeth as a little Valentine's Day special. And we have the absolute pleasure of having not one and not two, but three special guests on tonight's episode. So allow me to introduce our listeners to Lonely and Projectile Varmint from Nobody's Horror Podcast. Ladies, you want to say hi? That's us. <laughs> Thank you. And we also have Watson from the Watsy Party Horror Show and Horror Movie Weekly and Jay of the Dead's new horror movies podcast. Hello. Hi. Super happy to be here. Yay. I'm so excited to have all you guys here. <laughs> so welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming and hanging out with me. I am very interested to see what you three individuals think of this movie. So I'm going to be. I can't wait yeah. to sink my teeth into it. <laughs> very good. Simple crash. <laughs> So before we get into our review, we're going to get into our haunting headlines. headlines. And because we have so many people on tonight, I'm just going to keep our segments short and sweet. Uh, and I just have a little two pieces of news to share, um, both pulled from Bloody Disgusting. Uh, one of them I especially wanted to get Lonely's opinion on because I read your review about the newest Exorcist movie on your blog, and uh, it looks like director David Gordon Green's uh, The Exorcist Believer was always supposed to be the first film in a planned trilogy from Blumhouse and Universal, part of a $400 million deal to bring the franchise back to life on the big screen. In fact, The Exorcist Deceiver had already been dated for release on April 18th, 2025, but it sounds like Universal is pumping the brakes. The Hollywood Reporter reports that David Gordon Green will no longer be directing The Exorcist Deceiver and that Universal and Blumhouse are actively seeking a new director. According to the site, Gordon Green is exiting The Exorcist Deceiver as director because he's busy working on a future film called Nutcrackers and a TV series. Uh, the Righteous Gemstones. I love that series. And the problem here is that Believer got the reboot trilogy off to a shaky start. The film flopped with critics and failed to make a huge splash at the box office. So what do you guys think about that? Sure, so, he's on something else. That's, <laughs> that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, I think that whatever you have to say about Believer and whatever you have to say about the new Halloween trilogy... David Gordon Green is one of the ballsiest horror directors we have right now. You know how much guts it takes to remake not only Halloween, but also reboot The Exorcist. The amount of confidence you need in yourself is just so immense to do this. And I think one of the challenges of reboots is that no matter what you do, diehards are not going to be happy. You can make a mm -hmm. cinematic masterpiece and people are not going to be happy. I don't think that any iteration of Halloween Ends would have made anyone happy. So... 
I mean, I was a fan of Halloween Ends, and I also liked Believer. My only thing with Gordon Green is that he has a little bit of a kumbaya storytelling method to him, where he brings in mm. this, like, happiness that doesn't need to be there, in my opinion. Um, especially, <laughs> right. You know, in the Exorcist. In a horror Believer. movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In Exorcist <laughs> yeah. Believer, everyone's like, you know what we need? The power of friendship. And I'm like, no, you need a crucifix and some, some holy water. But I mean, I I didn't need Exorcist Believer, so I didn't really need the rest of it. So I'm not like bummed out. But I do think that the whole conversation around reboots is really interesting in the community because it doesn't matter what anybody does. No one's going to be happy. Yeah, I know. I also wondered with um with both this and Halloween, like how much of it is is David Gordon Green's fault anyways? Like how much involvement is there from Blumhouse? Um, so, cause he, I think he's a really good director, you know? And I thought that the first half of the newest Exorcist movie was so good that while I was watching the first half, I was like kind of blown away cause I had really low expectations. I was like, oh my God, this is really scary. And like the cinematography is great. I love the directing and the way the camera's moving. And then they kind of lost me with the way that they went with all the characters in the second half. But I was totally on board for the first half. And I think that that alone shows that he's a competent director. What do you think, uh, Watson? You know, I didn't see Believer, but Lonely's right about, you know, the the attitude toward reboots and everything Mm -hmm. like that. And so, yeah, and, and your question as to, how much of this is Green's responsibility and or fault is interesting to me because I don't I don't know when or how you find out to what degree a movie's afflicted by studio interference. And so it, it sounds like a lot's up in the air, but either way, it sounds like Blumhouse isn't happy with him for whatever reason. It kind of makes me want to go see this movie now. I just took my time with it. I wasn't avoiding it or anything. I just uh, didn't get around to it. So it sounds like Lonely liked it. So uh, we do line up a lot. I, I don't know. I, I I'll have to check this one out. I'm not aver- adverse to remakes and reboots and things like that as long as, you know, there's respect to the source material. And, um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that too. In general, I'm not like a reboot hater. No, I like like to give everything a chance. The good movies aren't the ones that need to be remade and rebooted. We need to remake the ones that didn't hit the mark. I agree. Yeah, I know. I totally agree with that. Was it we recently on the horror cast, we covered a ghost story, which, um, you know, based on the the book. Straub, yeah. Yeah. And um, that movie's actually pretty cool, but it's like old and dated, you know, and they didn't have good, you know, like effects and stuff at the time. So that's one where we were saying like, oh, I wish they would remake this now. It would be so cool. But yeah, no, I don't know why. Well, because all people care about is making money. So they're like, this made money last time. It'll make money again. So I guess that's why. But I agree, Susie. Uh, The only other bit of news is, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. You could take my horror card away. But David M.G. or M.G., I'm not sure, Flyboy from Dawn of the Dead, passed away at the age of 77. That's really a huge bummer. Um, definitely wanted to make sure I mentioned it because I don't want to get any hate mail. And because I love Dawn of the Dead and I love Flyboy, even if, even if I can't pronounce the actor's last name properly. Um <laughs> Although, if you listen to the show, you know I can't pronounce anybody's name properly, probably, but, yeah. At least you can remember the names. I can't even remember the names, and I pronounce them wrong, so. (laughs) All right, so that's it for our haunting headlines. Next, we're going to get into our Fright Bite. (laughs) 
because we have guests on tonight. I'm going to have you guys go first. So if you could just tell us one or two things that you guys have done lately that are horror related, whether it's a cool event you went to or a movie you watched, whether you liked it or didn't like it, whatever you want to say about it. I'm going to make Susie go first because on this show, ladies go first. Oh, jeez. Well, I just (laughs) right before this, I got off a Skype call with seven elementary school moms planning a dance. That was pretty horrific. (laughs) <laughs> That's all I got. That is pretty horrific. You don't want to bring up like a movie you saw recently or anything? Um, I, I rewatched Bram Stoker's Dracula, and unfortunately, some movies just don't hold up. I have to agree with that. That was a huge favorite movie of mine growing up. And then I rewatched it like critically not too long ago, and I was like, oh no. This isn't a perfect masterpiece of a movie. It actually has quite a few issues. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't, I seen, that. I haven't seen that one since I was a teenager. Now I'm scared to watch it because, yeah, yeah, what if it doesn't hold up? Okay, yeah, it sounds, sounds like it might not. Yeah, there's some problematic <laughs> issues with acting and choices and effects. Oh, no. So, oh. But it's not all bad. It's not all bad. It was just one of those ones that was a 10 out of 10 for me growing up. Uh, And how about you, Lonely? What have you done that's horror-related lately? So it has been, I would say, since we came back from the holiday, it has been all no bodies all the time. No stopping ever. So it's been a lot of show prep. And right now we're prepping for our own Valentine's Day episode at the time of recording. And I did a double feature of the film we're talking about tonight and The Love Witch. And I love <laughs> Love Witch. That is just nice. I am working on a post for my blog and the title is going to be I Support Women's Rights and Women's Wrongs because <laughs> I love Elaine Park <laughs> as a character and Iconic. Just, yeah, just everything it's such a tongue in cheek, like interesting like commentary on the commodification of women and also if you know anything about contemporary witchcraft, it's also a pretty spot on, you know, commentary and also depiction of a lot of contemporary witchcraft practices so i love the love witch it's so aesthetically nice to look at but i was thinking about how not marketable it would be to a general horror audience like if you're not going in with the purpose of watching a horror comedy or watching something with that style or any interest in the storyline you're probably not going to like the movie because it's kind of a journey there's a lot of twisting and turning and there's not a lot of standard horror so that's one thing i watched and then also in prep for the our one of our specials coming up on No Bodies. I've been watching some choice horror movies with my lovely patient boyfriend who <laughs> are but nothing that skews artsy. So we actually watched Star- uh, Saltburn right before this. And um, his words, quote unquote, were, are these gay demons? I hate it here. <laughs> so he <laughs> did not like Saltburn at all. He got, he also has a knack for predicting the entire plot of a movie. So, like, he predicted the whole plot of Saltburn, predicted the whole part plot of Bones and All. Um, he's tough critic. What can I say? <laughs> That's so funny. I actually haven't seen that yet. Is that a horror movie? Or is that kind of like a fringe? Saltburn? Yeah. Saltburn, yeah. It's okay. I'd say it's a thr- like a thriller horror movie, more towards like a dramatic. Um, they're calling it a dark yeah they're calling it a dark comedy psychological thriller type situation 
Um, okay. But there isn't a lot of standard horror elements, which was also a critique from my my boyfriend was like yeah, another quote he had was, why isn't anyone stabbing each other? Very <laughs> Yeah, seriously. That is necessary. Well, I'm very much like Dave Z when it comes to those movies that are not necessarily like full on horror. I kind of wait till January, February to catch up with those more like fringy movies. Yep, so that's what he does. Yeah, I was planning on doing watching that one soon, too. But I had to like shove in all the strict horror movies for the 2023 list. So now I can actually take a breath and watch other things. One of my listeners made fun of me because I haven't watched Barbie or Oppenheimer. I was like, I only watch horror movies because of you guys. No, it's okay. Jay the Dead's been harassing me for months to watch Barbie, and it still hasn't happened. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get around to it, I promise. So we're already at the end of January. So I guess in February, that's when I'll watch the Fringe movies. All right, Watson, let us know one or two things that you've been doing lately that are horror-related. Oh, thank you. Well, one thing I did recently that fits this segment perfectly is I – Re- reread one of my favorite Stephen King novellas. Uh, in 2010, I think it was 20, yeah, 2010, King came out with Full Dark No Stars, which is a collection of four novellas. Now, three of them have been adapted to the screen and made into movies. There was 1922 starring Thomas Jane, which is the best film of the three and can be found on Netflix. There was Big Driver, and that became a Lifetime movie, believe it or not. And mm. yeah, I never did get around to, the, to seeing the third one called A Good Marriage. But I've heard nothing but bad things, so I kind of was avoiding that. But the novella I'm talking about here is called Fair Extension. It's the shortest of the four novellas in this collection and definitely the darkest and most mean-spirited. I doubt we'll see this made into a movie anytime soon because it doesn't really lend itself easily to that. There's not much you could do cinematically. It's just it's a simple tale, really, just a sort of offbeat Faustian deal with the devil story and not much more to it than that. And but but what makes it just such a nasty little narrative is the way you watch as one person's life gets immeasurably better while someone else's gets worse. And I'm telling you, the very last line of this novella is one of my favorites that King has ever written. Uh, readers out there, check out Fair Extension from Full Dark No Stars. You can read it in one sitting also. I had my son read it. We were discussing it. And uh, truly gut-wrenching stuff. I, I, I love it. Fair Extension. Oh, that's awesome. I'll have to consider that for a book nook episode because mm-hmm. we review books on here too. Yep. Um, so that would be a fun little one to do with the listeners. I can oh, probably it's a quick read, Jessica. That one. Yeah, yeah, quick, quick read. Yep. Okay, Actually, cool. I prefer um, a good marriage over 1922 of that set. Oh, um, nice. Okay. Yeah, good marriage. I, I mean, it's what you expect it to be. It, I mean, if you were to compare it to Gerald's Game, which is somewhere like a close cousin to that, it is yeah. Gerald's Game is stronger. But I don't think there's anything seriously wrong with a good marriage. It's oh, okay. Cool. I, yeah. Well, why the bad reviews then? I, I kind of, I don't like to hear that. I, I do want to see it now. Yeah. I, Somebody personally... I don't think it's entirely um, – it's not entirely true to the novella because, oh, I mean, okay. that's one of the things that sucks about novellas and mo- moving them to the screen is that you only have this much content. So when you yep. move it to the screen, something has to be added in. This was sure. one of the biggest critiques of, like, Black Phone. Black Phone, but, yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, Black Phone, controversial opinion, the short story actually is not that great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the movie's a lot better. <laughs> I haven't I read it. I agree with that, actually. Yeah, I'm with you, Lonely. That's funny. I've only seen 1922 of – 
those that you just named off, and mm-hmm. I thought that that was pretty cool. Oh, I, yeah, I loved uh, <laughs> Thomas Jane's transformation, but I think, uh, yeah, yeah, Lonely sold me on A Good Marriage because uh, Big Driver was, okay, I watched it. It was like, yeah, this is a Lifetime movie, but, yeah, okay, I'm kind of sold on A Good Marriage here. Cool. Yeah, you might as well if you've if watched I, yeah, the other not? two. <laughs> yep. Okay, awesome. Um, well, for me, the only thing that I've done since doing our 2023 list on the Horrorcast is I finally got to watch Destroy All Neighbors on Shudder, which I've been really excited to watch. And um, it's even a little too manic and slapsticky for me personally. It's like very all over the place, especially in the first half of the movie. This is the one with Alex Winter, by the way, if you guys don't know what I'm referring to. Um, Jonah Ray and Alex Winter are in it. But um, in the second half, it really kind of won me over. It actually has a lot of heart and had a a cool message that I personally relate to, like, very strongly. So it got me in the end. And the main character is obsessed with prog music. um, And that kind of won me over, too. (laughs) So it's, like, just really crazy. Lots of uh, visual effects, both practical and CGI. And it's all done really well. It's very fun to look at. So, and that's a comedy horror, so I don't know if Lonely or Susie would be interested, but it's a it's a fun little one on Shutter. It was a good way to like start off the new year for me. So, I would recommend people check it out. But that's my only recent watch. the slumber party massacre we got a comment from temple van that said just finished been a spm fan a long time director amy jones mentions on her commentary from shout factory that the locker room nudity was required and she tried to make it as by the numbers abc and out as possible i agree with tammy it would have been great to see the ouija board scene um wonder if it was cut since it might have changed the characters getting caught as off guard as they do when the pizza guy shows up. Also, it's a little ironic that the second movie actually plays as more of a comedy than this one. Two was an acquired taste for me, and it took time. Dare I say, young dude bro me liked the shower scene in part one, lol. Uh, And this was fun to share on Facebook because then Tammy, of course, who's very demanding, uh, demanded that he share a dude bro picture from his past, which he did. Thank you for doing that, Temple Van. Um, I shared an old photo of myself as well from my kind of punk show days. Um, So it's just fun. I love our Facebook group. If you guys ever want to share photos, please do. We definitely encourage it. Uh, For our top five hidden gems of 2023 episode, we got some feedback from Trey Whetstone. And he said, I love your number one, Tammy. That's a great choice. I've seen a ton of horror movies from 2023, but you each had at least a couple of movies that I haven't seen yet. Jess's number one sounded very intriguing. This was a great episode. So thank you, Trey, as always. Um, And then for Teeth, which this is going to be, you know, this was for this show, um, Christine Lynn said, I've only seen Teeth once, but I remember enjoying the weird concept 
and how this girl's body reacted to and then protected her from all the asshats that tried to hurt her. In addition to the first guy that rapes her, I remember the creepy doctor and the one guy that at first seems like he's going to make it. He gave her a little enjoyment, but as soon as she became uncomfortable, he wouldn't stop when she resisted. And then he gets bit. My memory might be off and I can't remember how it ends, but I'm so excited to revisit this one. So, Christine, I hope you did. Um, and when this episode drops, hopefully you've, you know, rewatched it by then and you can just dive right in. Um, I think because you've seen it before, it's fine either way. But it was definitely an interesting one for me to revisit as well as one of our guests, Susie. Uh, we both hadn't seen it in a while and we kind of came away, uh, you know, with slightly different perspectives than the first time we watched it, you know, and it's really interesting because of when this movie came out, everything that's happened in between that time and now um, to go back and look at it and see what's held up, what was kind of revolutionary for the time and what's a little dated. So I'm excited uh, for you to rewatch that and maybe you can report back and let us know how it was on your rewatch. Uh, Trey Whetstone said that it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember liking it a lot. It gets uncomfortable at times, but I love the story and especially Dawn as a character. And uh, I think most of us agreed with that sentiment on the show. We really empathized with Dawn and liked her character. So thought she did a really great job at balancing out, you know, like her, her own personal morality and what she thought that that entailed and just being like a really down to earth, you know, girl that's coming of a like coming into her own um so yeah i think her character is very well balanced and likable so will aka armored foe said i feel like as a horny guy even if it had teeth i'm not sure i could resist when i first saw this movie a long time ago it definitely freaked me out because it was something that never crossed my mind but that is definitely a scary concept super interesting and worth the watch So I love that Will provided this feedback, Um, not about anything deep about the movie or the messaging. He really just focused in on the idea of the vagina dentata just as a horror within itself. And I love that he did that. Um, And not to say that Will isn't a deep guy because he totally is, but it's just great because he, you know, we didn't get any other comments that are in line with this thinking. So I get it. And... (laughs) You know what? I probably wouldn't have been able to resist either if that were the case for me. So right there with you, Will. So that being said, we can jump into our little review here of Teeth from 2007. All right. What can I do for you, Miss? Is this your first time? Okay. So I imagine you have no idea what to expect. Not really. Don't worry. I'm not going to bite you. Just lie down. Put your feet right in here. Okay. Are you sexually active? No, I just want to be checked out. Okay, then. I think there might be something weird going on inside. something inside of me that's lethal. Dentata. What? It's Latin for teeth. 
It's what's inside me. Are you afraid? This is too weird. Just wait. Teeth is an R-rated movie that runs at one hour and 34 minutes. The director is Mitchell Lichtenstein, Lichtenstein, and it stars uh, Jess Wexler as Don, John Hensley as Brad, which I, I thought he was hilarious, Josh Pice as Dr. Godfrey, Hale Appleman as Toby, um, Lenny Von Dolan as Bill, the stepfather. Vivian Banesh is Kim, the mother of Dawn. Um, Ashley Springer plays her friend Ryan. Uh, and those are the main players in this. I don't need to go through the rest. But those are our main cast. And Teeth uh, starts off with a camera kind of panning over this little, like, idyllic city. But there's a gigantic gross power plant right behind it. And we zoom in to the front yard of one of the houses uh, that's right in front of this power plant. And we see um, a man and his partner, you know, we can assume. And they're hanging out with their kids in this little kiddie pool. And already we're getting into this material because the little boy in the kiddie pool is flashing his junk to the little girl. And we find out that they're not actually brother and sister that his dad is the man sitting in the front yard and her mom is the woman and they're dating. Um, but already Bill, um, who ends up becoming Don's stepdad, he seems like a cool dude. And he's trying to tell his son to stop being a little shit. Just so you guys know, we can curse on here. Uh, he tells his son to stop being a little shit and be nice to Don because he wants them, you know, to become brother and sister at some point. Um, and so basically everybody in the situation seems cool except for the gross little boy who is, well, I don't want to call it, I guess it's kind of, it's normal, right? I shouldn't be judging this poor little boy, but little kids, they do stuff like that. Like they get interested in their body parts and they show each other their body parts. I don't know if little kids still do that, but that's pretty normal when I was a kid, if I'm being completely I don't honest. have kids, so that's freaky as hell i'm not i'm judging I'm judging <laughs> well that's fine but yeah i mean i remember that being like a relatively normal thing when i was growing up um i don't have any experiences with my own daughter doing that so i don't know if kids do that anymore but it's normal for kids to be curious about that stuff but anyways he tells her that he'll show her his if she shows him hers so when she does, <laughs> he pulls away his finger because apparently he didn't just want to do a show and tell. Um, <laughs> the tip of his finger has clearly been bitten. So what do you guys have to say about this opening scene? Just getting right into it already. Well, something I noticed that happened in the opening scene was the father was saying, like, I want you to be brother and sister. And then Toby was like pretty aggressively yelling at his father and then um, Dawn's mother just brushed off that really aggressive behavior, and it just made me think of how women are just supposed to brush off aggressive men and appease them. And thankfully, the power dynamic in the beginning of this movie is starting to shift now, but 
that whole scene was just like a snapshot of what women deal with. And unfortunately, the mother isn't, you know, helping the daughter at all, even though she doesn't know what happens. But she's just, it's okay. Almost like a boys will be boys. It's okay. I feel like this scene really sets it up for the kind of dark comedy that it's going to be. This is probably one of the truest examples of dark comedy that I've ever seen. This was my first time watching it uh, for this conversation. So all first first impressions for me. But there are things in this that are funny, I would say, and you find yourself laughing and you're like, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? Why am I laughing at this? And then mm-hmm. I also struggled with this film because I found a lot of it not funny. Oh, a lot of it not funny. A lot of it actually deeply troubling. <laughs> so right. as we get through other scenes, like I'll give more examples of it. But I would say this is probably one of the more laughable scenes that happens in the film. If you think too hard about the premise, it also becomes like very, I don't know, it's very, very dark. The, I mean, I know we're supposed to laugh at it, but it's essentially, you know, a, the, the child, he molested her. That's the, that's what happened yeah. there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's like we're supposed to laugh, but also it's like very, it's like, I don't know. It's it, the film is also, it's interesting how any of this aged. I'm sure, I hope that will come up in the conversation, how any of this has aged over the last few years absolutely yeah and i'm sorry i should have asked everyone if you had seen this before so this was your first time watch lonely and then Susie had seen it before because she was actually the one who brought it up when when i came and guessed it on your guys's podcast right Susie? yep okay I perfect saw, i thought when i came out oh wow okay yeah i think i i didn't see it until somewhere between like five and ten years ago um, and then I found out about it and watched it, but I've only watched it the one time until now. What about you, Watson? Like Susie, I saw it when it came out, but then watched it for the second time for this show, and I'd forgotten just about everything. And so I, I'll tell you, mainly I've forgotten how massively uncomfortable this opening scene is, even though, to Lonely's point, there, this movie does lean into the – uh, the sort of the B movie dark comedy aspects uh, quite a bit, and I I, I like it I like it when the movie's doing that because there are some scenes that should be that you'll discuss of course that shouldn't be as successfully funny as they are uh, given what's happening. This one I I wasn't finding it uh, funny. I was just like I was like I forgot this happened, and I was just like damn right right away, huh? Whew. Yeah. And yeah. going into this, I was expecting, because I knew, I only knew, like, what the meme of this movie was, which is the general premise and then the poster. And I was expecting something much more along the lines of, like, a Tusk-esque body horror situation. And that is not at all what's happening here. It's very, <laughs> very dark. I would say, you know, I was actually watching this, texting my best friend. I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to be talking about this film because it's so... It's just the premise itself is like very troubling. Like what it's getting at is very troubling. And this scene just sets the stage for everything that happens afterwards. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Definitely interested to see how everyone feels about this by the end. So we kind of fast forward and Dawn's a teenager now and she's in high school and she's part of a group called The Promise um, where she it's like a Christian abstinence group. And she's giving a speech in front of a bunch of kids, and they're kind of of varying ages. So I guess they're all supposed to be in high school, but it seems like some of them could even be in middle school. So I'm not sure exactly. Um, But she's giving this speech, and she feels very genuine, like she really believes in what she's saying. And that's something I really like about her character throughout this first half, too, is that, you know, she's not just saying this. Like, you can tell she really believes in it. Um, but she's also not like snotty or judgmental, 
you know, but, um, but anyway, so she's giving the speech to all those kids about their promise ring that they're all wearing this creepy red ring. And it's supposed to be there. It's a gift that they give away to the right person when they get married, um, you know, referencing their virginity, of course. Um, and after she gives the speech, she goes and hangs out with two of her best friends off to the side and um, a boy approaches named Toby and they've kind of given each other the eyes. So you can tell already that they're attracted to each other. So it's clearly going to become, you know, a talking point at some point. Um, but she, you know, they're giving each other the eyes, but they're both trying to be kind of like respectful and, you know, kind of hit on each other a little bit, but in a Christian abstinence kind of way, I guess. <laughs> I don't have any familiarity with that myself, so. <laughs> have you ever run into these types of groups before? Do you remember any of them growing up or anything? No, not me personally. I grew up in Palm Springs, California. Everyone mm. I grew up with was gay. Oh, God. okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> not very many abstinence uh, culture groups uh, there in the in the gay community? Uh, no. no. <laughs> Susie Lonely, did, have either of you encountered these types of promise ring uh, sort of groups? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, yes, you have. Huh? I have. I Well, I grew up very, very, very Catholic. <laughs> mm. Emphasis on the very, oh. Um, oh. which this will come up again um, as we get farther along in the, in the movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I went to nine years of Catholic school. I come from a very um, Catholic family. And I, so yeah, there were people in my, my life who had these, the same outlooks, and especially when it comes to abstinence. And abstinence is such an interesting conversation because there's a lot to be said there about the dangers of only showing young people abstinence as the only sexual, you know, protection yeah. method. But my favorite part about abstinence in this film is that just like you said, Jess, Dawn is very genuine. She doesn't have, like, she doesn't judge other people. She's not pushing it on others. It's everybody else who's like bullying all of the abstinence kids. They're <laughs> yeah. talking, they're talking about them in the hallway. They're yeah. pushing them. They're making fun of them. And in real life, I feel like it's a lot of the opposite where there have been situations, at least in my life, where there are people who believe really strongly in this and push it upon you. Whereas mm. I feel like in this film, it's the opposite. They are the ones who are being bullied and kind of pushed aside in thought to be like freaks for thinking this when they really aren't real. They're not really pushing anything on anybody. They're just living their lives in the way they'd like to. So I thought it was an interesting take on absence. Cause you don't, when you think about other movies, both horror and otherwise featuring teens, absence isn't usually handled in that way. It's usually the flip. So that's true. I wonder why they decided to do it that way. I don't know if it's just to make Dawn more sympathetic Probably. I think it has, since Dawn's the main character, I think to, you know, make her feel, I think you're really supposed to feel for Dawn because I think, you know, she's in this world or this universe where everybody except maybe the stepfather is very corrupt and strange and like pointing that out. Yeah. So it's, I think it's maybe there to show that Dawn is, is genuine and kind and trying to navigate the world in the way she believes is best. And as we see, that changes through the course of the film. Yeah. I like, too, when she is being bullied, you can tell it doesn't really bother her. You know what I mean? Like, she seems like she just has her own thing going on, her own agenda, and that's the only thing that really concerns her. Um, And I really like that. I mean, and then throughout the movie, she becomes, like, very quickly open to the world, you know, operating in different ways. Um, But I do, in general, just really like her character, you know? Same, yeah. 
Okay, perfect. So after this speech, um, there are a couple of scenes of them at school. There's one where they're in a science class, I'm assuming, and the teacher is going over the different genitalia of the two different sexes. And everyone gets to look at the the picture of the penis, but for some reason the vagina is covered with this big gold sticker for, you know, morality editing purposes. And Don does say something that I thought was so funny about how women have um a natural modesty about them or something, and that's why they they did that. I don't where have that. So I don't know. Though? I, it's like, where is God getting this all from? Because she's witnessing like a really loving and sexual relationship of her mother and stepfather. So I was just wondering, like, how did Dawn become who she is? And I mean, we've been covering up the vulva for centuries, so that wasn't a surprising part of the movie. Yeah, that was. I mean, and this is supposed to take place in the Midwest, I believe. I have. I'm from Southern California, so it's like a completely different world. Um, not a lot of modesty where I come from. So, well, I'll say even so. I'm from New England, which was generally considered one of the, besides California, the more liberal part of the country. And I guess it depends on the circles that you find yourself in. Because going back to my my Catholic school days, when I saw this sticker in the textbook scene, it was like a page out of my my middle school years, my childhood. We had a book like this, not with a sticker in it, but okay. it's very funny because I've received virtually no sexual education up until mm. probably when I was 18 years old. And by then, the damage is done. You know, whoever, whatever decisions you're going to make by that age have already happened. But in Catholic school, we had a book. It was called Family Life. You got it when you were in sixth grade. They told you to go home and read it with your parents. And it said that if you had sex for any other reason other than to have a child, you were going to go to hell. I kid you not. This is what the book said so I was 12 years old like crying because even at that age I knew that I wasn't sure if I wanted children so yeah well I guess I'm celibate those are my choices hell or celibacy so wow that's terrifying yeah like this really I know it's it's a joke in the film and it's very funny especially when she finds a way to get the sticker off later but (laughs) it's For a lot of people, it is like a reality of what sex education looks like. And even when we think about some of the the communities in the Bible Belt and in the Deep South, this is real life for them. There is no other information being shared. It's just something like this. Yeah. Thank God for the Internet. True. (laughs) Seriously. And it's like back back in 2007, at least, I think most people were still kind of planning on you have kids at some point and it's just now becoming more normal for people to be like, no, I actually don't want to have kids. So I can't even imagine the Catholic guilt or any religious guilt. Oh man, that's just like a whole nother layer. Yeah. We're saving the Catholic guilt for a multi-episode series on nobodies. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I love the concept. I grew up like a total heathen. So all of that is just so otherworldly to me, but just so fascinating. You know, it's Um, funny in my area of the country, kind of, you know, blue state Washington with, you know, little red parts here and there. Uh, it, it, the, sort of the sexuality was treated with a lot of flippancy. Uh, they didn't do great with trying to promote abstinence culture or great at the dangers of unchecked promiscuity and what that leads to. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like, meh, 
I know it's I don't understand why education like sex education isn't seen as a resource for understanding the situation better in general you know what I mean like oh just ignore it don't talk about it It because we have a lot of fucked up parents that don't want their kids to know about anything yeah it's so strange strange to me um well I guess I could bring this up with Susie and Watson your dad did were you guys always pretty open with your kids about sex education in general? Oh, my daughter is five, and she can tell you how a baby is made. She okay, can tell you the accurate body parts and what happens. So, oh, you got we just kept... I always for, forget that people have little babies because my baby is so big now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, my my parents never talked to me about it, so mm. we have been teaching her both my kids since since they came out of me, like how they got in me. So. It'll make the conversations later that much easier. Right. Totally. What about you, Watson? Do you feel comfortable sharing your experience as a father? Sure. Absolutely. You know, especially because I was a, you know, single father of a, of a boy who's, you know, 20 and, uh, at this point and, um, you know, it was, you know, we're all, we're open about these things, but it wasn't something that came up, uh, up until it came up. You know, I was just playing that one by ear. You know, we didn't, yeah, that's, that's hard to say. I have never really thought about this before. Um, but yeah, it came, it came up when it came up in his teens when that stuff started kind of becoming a subject. And, and then, you know, right then after that, it was just kind of, you know, some honesty about it. He's not really interested in, uh, any kind of dating. His thoughts are kind of purely in his creative endeavors such that, he doesn't talk about it. And I've asked him, hey, any, you know, push toward, you know, wanting to get a girlfriend or any, any of that stuff. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, me and my friends just really aren't interested in that stuff right now. And so it's pretty casual and pretty easy on me, to be honest. He could be somebody who's was out there a lot like I was. I mean, shoot, I, I he was two uh, when, you know, uh, I was his age. So, you know, that's that's kind of how that how that went. We keep it open and honest and, uh, you know, we've got a relationship such that the trust is there. And I think that's where a lot of the failing comes from no matter what kind of sexual lesson you're trying to pass on to the next generation. If there's no trust and respect there, then, gosh, I've, I've seen all sorts of scenarios where, you know, the, the parent, the, the, chi- the children rebel uh, in one way or another. In fact, one of my uh, ex-girlfriends was, uh, you know, her mom was a, a hippie straight from Haight-Ashbury there you know and and she became this uh strange breed of a leftist activist uh, activist mixed with a, a social conservative uh with, with with regards to sex it was such an interesting uh thing to see when she was explaining her journey to me about why she is the way she is and so she rebelled against her liberal mom with sexual conservatism and i remember thinking huh you know that's, that's an interesting thing but there was no trust there in their yeah. relationship when it came to that and so you know at least that's what i I guess, you know, to any parents out there who are like, oh, man, how do we even discuss this stuff? Yeah, Susie's pretty – what she's talking about is just straight on and, and straightforward. Uh, mine was, you know, took a little longer, but it's also that, you know, anything – the trust is there to have those conversations without fear – you know, without, you know, any fear involved or shame. And that's the uh, – I think that's the key to, to making it work. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I know if um, – with my daughter, I think I talked to her like – in elementary school and then middle school and high school. And it was like every time the conversation evolved a little more, you know, I'm like, okay, so you remember what we talked about last time? We're going to kind of pick up and I'm going to kind of fill you in a little more and just want you to be cool about it. Like, don't be embarrassed, you know, and 
So I've always talked to her about it, too, because I think everything I learned was from other kids, like in elementary school. So I was just like, okay, this is about the age when I started getting my sex (laughs) education. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Remember those days. Yeah, that's how I kind of picked, like, when I was going to talk to her about stuff. Um, And she was always very embarrassed about it. And I've always been like, it's all good, man. You know, (laughs) like, I used to go to... um, I was taking drawing classes when she was a little kid and I was doing figure art and I'd be showing her all the drawings I did of all the naked people. And she's like, Oh my God, how can you sit there and look at naked people? Like, it's just natural. It's fine. You don't need to worry about it. You know? So she's always been kind of shy about that stuff, but I think it's good to just like at least give them that space to talk about it and be like, I'm here listening, you know, and I want to offer you some resources and information, even if it embarrasses you. So, yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Thanks, guys. There are a couple of other instances where Toby and Dawn kind of make eyes at each other. And they eventually, uh, I think they, do they actually literally call each other? Because I don't know if the texting was big yet at the time. I don't remember if they called or texted, but they are basically like, I'm attracted to you. I don't think that we should continue to hang out. It's kind of an issue. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. They're on the same page. And they also went to see like a PG-13 movie. <laughs> something actually i think they went to a pg movie because they said pg-13 was even too risque um and their other two friends are dating so they're doing a little making out a little innocent making out you know but they can't go any further than that because they're also part of this promise group um and but eventually they do end up against their you know better instincts going to hang out at this watering hole together just the two of them and it's kind of known as the makeout spot in town um and this is a horrible terrifying scene um this is probably actually one of the scarier scenes for me because you know they kind of start kissing they're kind of fumbling around a little um, but at one point, Dawn's finally like, okay, like, no more. If we've made a promise, like, it's really important to me, you know? Um, and I think it's so hard for them to kind of figure out where's that line where we can kind of indulge in each other and enjoy each other because what if they do want to get married and have kids eventually? You know, you still have to be able to build that relationship, but without sex. And they're these hormonal teenagers. Um, but he takes it too far and he doesn't take no for an answer and she even says at one point i'm saying no like very strongly and he pursues anyways and he hits her head on accident which he apologizes for but then she's kind of like knocked out for a second and he takes that opportunity to rape her uh which is not funny at all and even in this movie where they have more fun with these instances you know in later scenes and they're still horrifying when you think about it, what's actually happening, you know, but she's knocked out in this scene. She's not making any funny jokes at the same time. Um, but he does get his comeuppance, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm not a huge fan of rape revenge movies, um, but this is probably my favorite like rape revenge movie if I had to pick one, you know, and obviously it's because it's comedic and it's supposed I feel like it's intention is to point a light, you know, at those scenarios and men that do things like this um, and to, like, judge and shame those people, I feel like, 
I'm hoping that that's what the director's intent was. Um, but yeah, what did you guys think about the scene as you're watching it unfold? Well, you just mentioned like to guilt and shame the men, but after this happens, Dawn is the one who feels guilty and shameful. And even though what happened was an accident and she had no control over it, uh, what this is where the movie comes together for me about morality. Like she didn't go and get help for, for Toby and she let, like she knew what was happening. She knew that he'd probably not end up okay. And I don't know, it just seemed really against Don's character to just leave him, even mm-hmm. after the terrible thing he did to her. I feel like that's a true statement. I mean, I definitely, I would have left them, but that's in my character. <laughs> you're right. I think in Don's character, what you're saying totally makes sense that she probably, and she was clearly feeling very guilty about it. Not that this is a huge commentary. Like, there's not a lot of commentary on trauma because this is a comedy, but I feel like it speaks to what we hear from anecdotal to the media when something like this happens. People often make decisions that are out of character because this is an event that you did not plan to fall into your life. So when you make a decision immediately following like a a horrible, violent act like this, it's not always going to to match up with your moral compass. This is one of my favorite conversations because it comes up a lot. This came up in the conversation on a totally separate film, The Dark, where it was sort of the same mentality. And this film talks about date rape in such an interesting way because this is a trash can fire of a concept in the media to begin with because people refuse to wrap their heads around the idea of consent. And Mm -hmm. even in Western culture where consent is talked about a lot, people don't understand it in the way they need to or accept it as a concept is the way they need to. And I think when I saw this scene, something that came to mind for me was the actual case of Lorena Bobbitt. I don't know if anybody is familiar with that, but this was a case of um, a wife who mutilated her husband who had a long track record of raping her. And when that went, when that case went to trial, he was never convicted of sexual assault because the American public court of opinion could not understand the idea of a husband raping somebody that he was married to. Mm-hmm. And if we can't even address that, how the heck would somebody be able to address date rape? So it's a very, as Dawn navigates the, the situation following the, this crime, it's such a tongue-in-cheek commentary on the way society views it as well. Yeah. The guy just disappears. He never gets any responsibility because he's dead. <laughs> and Dawn is stuck with the pieces. She's stuck with the aftermath. Yeah. I do think it's interesting, too, just to bring up how, like, ashamed and guilty she feels, you know, when somebody was terrorizing her and raping her. It's really, I guess I didn't full out say, too, that this scene concludes with the vagina dentata biting off Toby's penis, um, which is very funny to see to me. I like seeing the penis. I was trying to remember. I think this might have been like one of the earliest like penis prosthetics that I saw in this kind of way, especially like detached in a horror movie. And it's it's gory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They go there. They do. And it looks like it could really be a penis bit off, you know, thought the effects were really good. The prosthetic or whatever you want to go with. Definitely. Yeah, Jessica, I like how you pointed out the lack of the cartoonish tone here in this scene, because all of that will show up later. Uh, but this scene was treated, I think, with a, a decent, uh, a proper amount uh, of horror for a movie like this. 
And, you know, I feel terrible for Don here. You know, I, I, while I don't think this movie presents the promise ring people with as much nuance as they could have, uh, because I've known these sorts of people in real life and they're not that overtly cultish. At least, you know, at least the ones I know and the groups I've been associated with are, well, not directly, but we'll come to see how Don, like you've said, has taken on the guilt of her assault. And this highlights the rift that, you know, forms between her and this group now, such that, you know, she goes to speak and she doesn't feel she can. And then, you know, which leads to her, as you'll probably describe her, dropping a ring off the edge of that cliff. And it's just a sad moment for me. And I, I, I mean, because she is, like you've said, a non-judgmental, just lovely, you know, good character. And just all this, and now to have to internalize her attack, it's mm-hmm. disgusting. It sucks. Yeah. And something that's interesting about this movie, too, is especially in 2007, I don't think that people really thought about rape in the same way. I I definitely didn't. It wasn't really until the Me Too movement happened that I started thinking about rape in the way that I do now. You know, it's like, well, this was a guy that she liked, you know? And she was kissing him and she was flirting with him. And so does that mean that he has the right to just rape her because, you know, she was showing interest? Like, things like that. I think it's really cool that they they show all of these different, like, scenarios within the movie of times when you could be taken advantage of, but people wouldn't think of that, you know, as you being taken advantage of. So... This is just uh, one instance of that out of many. Um, but, yeah, like you said, Watson, she does drop off her purity ring off the cliff, which is so sad. Um, and we do see a crab clawing <laughs> at Toby's penis. <laughs> it's that bee <laughs> movie. a great scene. Yeah, yep. Oh, so great. And so the vagina dentata mythology is an actual mythology in many cultures for a very, very long time. Um, I did, I, you know, just very briefly kind of looked into that to see if that was a thing. And yes, that is a thing. Um, so not just made up for the movie. So that is, I mean, I don't know if in the, any of the cultures they refer to it as vagina dentata specifically, but it's supposed to have derived from a lot of different cultures and mythology. Um, and I do know also that the director, uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein, and the, he's the writer as well, he was taking a feminist course uh, when he was coming up with the idea for this. And so I know there's a little bit of um, debate over whether, like, well, is this feminist? It's written and directed by a man. Um, he was taking a feminism course, so there's a lot of debate over that as well. And, you know, what's okay for him to show, like, on behalf of women not being one himself. So, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, he took a course. He must be an expert. Lonely, I'll let you take that one. Um, I would say, you know, there's a lot of commentary, and this is something we talk about a lot, uh, Susie and I, on our show, is that if a man is writing a story about a woman, and I know people are sick of me talking about this film on the internet, but men, you know, that's a men 2022 is a film that talks about specifically a feminine experience and a feminine trauma, but it's directed by Alex Garland. Does mm-hmm. that inherently make it a incorrect or wrong or inappropriate commentary on the feminine experience? No, but it should be considered when thinking about the the authenticity of that storytelling, because at the end of the day, history has been written by men and women have been erased from the picture even to this day. So 
I would say in terms of this being a feminist narrative, this is more of a commentary on men than women, I feel. And that's why I've kind of excused the fact that this was directed by a man. And the reason why I, I feel that way is because all of the women in this story are portrayed as very emotionally complex. Thinking about Dawn to the brother's girlfriend, they have complex emotions that impact their decisions, whereas the men in this narrative, even the stepfather, are very one-dimensional. They yep. really don't make any complex decisions. All of the men, other than the stepfather, the only word that came to mind for me was, like, lecherous. They're, like, disgusting and sleazy. Like, they're not making any decisions other than things that have to do with sexual gratification. So the fact that the women are very multidimensional, whereas the men in this story are one-dimensional, very darkly coded, it, it really aids itself to a feminist narrative, I would say. And it appeals to the idea that young women are taught at, from the beginning is that men only want one thing. My uh, Growing up, I was taught consistently that, and I laugh and say it now, that men are dogs because they only have they only have one thing that they're concerned about. And I think this film really... <laughs> I think this film really sells that idea that men are really one-dimensional. And is that a generalization of men? Are all men going to behave that way? No, of course not. But does every woman have a story about men's behavior in this way? Yes. Also, yes. So, yes, and. Yeah. What do you think, Watson, being the only man on the show? Well, I, I, think, <laughs> I think Lonely pointed out uh, some things that I was hoping to discuss later on about the the characterization uh between you know men and women and how that is handled in this movie and i think she worded it perfectly so i'm I'm there with her uh, um i think when it comes to men writing women uh you know <laughs> the thing that comes to mind as a complete joke is uh jack nicholson's scene in the movie as good as it gets when a woman approaches him as a famous novelist in that movie and she goes how do you write women so well and he goes i just think of a man and then i take away all reason and accountability uh, and it's like, whoa, whoa, hey, you know, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? But no, that's not what's going on here at, at all. In fact, uh, yeah, to, to Lonely's point, yeah, there's some odd, you know, ways where this does, uh, lend itself to a feminist narrative despite, you know, Lichtenstein being the guy behind it all. And I think it's, it's passable. Yeah. I've never, I've never really thought too much about that. Uh, you know, how, how that can be done. Um, probably women can write women the best, probably. Uh, but I've read tons of, you know, my favorite authors are females who write men pretty well. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe we're – maybe we are just a bunch of simple, lecherous creatures who want just that one thing. <laughs> well, I think part of that, what you mentioned, Watson, also comes back to the prior conversation the three of you had regarding, you know, child rearing and yeah. different ways that we introduce information to our children. And I think even, again, in Western culture, there is still in 2024 an emphasis on – young girls being just steered more clearly to things that would advance emotional intelligence where young boys mm. aren't. And yeah. I think Agreed. it's a societal and systematic thing that has been perpetuated. And when we think about, you know, Jesse mentioned this earlier, when this film specifically was made, these gender stereotypes were much more cemented than they are now. We're kind of just in 2024, I would say in the last three years, getting to a point where the gender binary is not the guiding compass in everything we do when it comes to education and child rearing. And that's also an interesting part of this movie is that the gender binary is so strong here. Yeah. You 
the whole story is driven by the fact that Dawn is a woman and this is happening because she has a vagina and this is what's happening. And all of the people who are the antagonists are this person because they have a penis. And I get so freaking bored of the gender binary, but that's really woo woo. So (laughs) (laughs) no, it's not woo woo. It's just, I mean, the times are changing, you know, and like when this came out, I thought, well, the way that they're approaching, you know, like rape and trauma is kind of actually revolutionary. But then you don't even there's the whole fact that, yeah, they're only focusing on these two genders and nothing else. And that's just like a whole other thing to consider, you know. So so there's a lot to think about, which is kind of fun out of a comedy horror. So after this scene, she, Dawn, starts to do some research on her vagina dentata. Uh, she's freaked out. And, of course, she doesn't, she's not very familiar with her body or her vagina or sex because she's been in this, you know, promise group and had that mentality of, like, she'll figure all that stuff out later when she figures out who she's going to marry. And now she's like, wait, is this, this isn't normal, right? And she doesn't even really know. So she's doing all this research. We get our fun little research montage. And then she finally goes and sees a gynecologist who's Dr. Godfrey. And um, the scene is so creepy and uncomfortable. <laughs> That's just another facet, you know? And it, it on a serious note, it makes me think of like that, um, that guy who is taking advantage of all the girls in uh that were gymnasts, which I actually did kind of follow along with that. And it was just so heartbreaking to hear all these different stories from all these girls. Um, so watching this now, having that in mind, it's like, yeah, that's just another scenario where, like, if you try to tell somebody, I think my doctor was touching me inappropriately, they would say, no, that's their job. It's a doctor, you know? And so... It is, it's just disturbing that even in that scenario, you might not be safe. Um, but the scene, while, you know, obviously serious and disturbing, is also pretty hilarious um, yeah. because <laughs> he goes to lube up his bare fingers. Disgusting. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and he's molesting her. And she is in so much pain, and he's telling her to just relax. And she's like, I can't. Um, and then his fingers get bitten off and it's awesome. And for anybody who's watching the YouTube, that's what the scene is behind me. Uh, I was wondering I what that it. was. Okay. <laughs> He's like, vagina dentata. He knows about the mythology. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> and then she's running out of the exam room, like screaming. That is pretty yeah. funny. That was giving me Justin Long vibes. Guttural oh, screaming. When in doubt, just guttural scream, and then it's funny. Yeah, just sell it. <laughs> and when she goes to stand up, the fingers fall out. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so funny. But, yeah, right before that, when he's just, like, really going all up in there, it's just, like, so uncomfortable to watch and think about. Yes, it's like, yes. That it was so hard already. for me to get through that. It was gross. Yeah. And thinking about how it's her first time at the gynecologist and how uncomfortable it is already, just in general, it's like, ugh, terrible. Poor girl. There was a scene right before this when she's in the classroom and the teacher is talking about um, the rattlesnake and how it uses a rattle for a certain reason. And it had me thinking about this movie as a whole and how the rattles, like, a self-preservation technique for the snake. And then Dawn has this like self-preservation technique that her body does. 
and and then it had me thinking about snakes <laughs> and like uh you know they they represent both good and evil and it just brought it all back to me and how Dawn is exploring her sexuality but she's also afraid of it so her <laughs> her vagina is a source of pleasure but also danger and it kind of had me thinking it's mirroring society's like attempts to sexualize women all the time but then when women are sexual they're chastised for that so i loved the the symbolism of the snake in this movie yeah and totally susie even the teacher says at that point when dawn is late for class and she comes in she goes dawn this is about you and you missed it yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's and really i would like to believe that the the power plant is what mutated her. Did anybody else think that? Yeah. 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 That was like yep. hand fed to us, right? Kind of, I, but not. I like... miss that, so. <laughs> just in the background, kind of yeah. some, uh, dramatic irony. If you pick up on it, you you pick up. I didn't notice it the first time, uh, but the second time, I yeah, I, I picked up on it this time. Yeah. Yeah, because they never like clearly address that as being what oh, they don't... adaptation. Yeah, they don't but... mention it, Jessica. They don't even yeah. say anything about it. It's just, yeah, exactly. in scenes. Yeah. So that's why I was saying, like, I guess it's kind of hand fed to you just because they'll show a lot of scenes whenever she's going to her house with it in the background, but they never, like, specifically say anything, so... Yeah, I totally miss that. I thought that was because you have this perfect girl and the perfect family in the perfect suburb, and then there's a friggin' nuclear power plant behind it. I thought that was just more <laughs> of the the dark comedy, but I didn't get I didn't get the whole geneticism happening. I wasn't good at science. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, with your background, it makes sense. <laughs> Sorry, my daughter also went to Catholic school briefly, and I remember her not having a science class and having a like a Bible class instead. And no, like, we learned about rocks. <laughs> I know the layers of the. Uh, I I learned about the rocks, and then I made a cell out of food. That was it. I made a cell really? diorama out of Cheerios and a fruit roll up. So, but no wow, no uh, chemical stuff. reactions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, thanks for bringing up that scene because it is actually kind of important. And then after that scene, she refers to it as an adaptation throughout the rest of the movie um, because of that lecture. So, um, yes. So after this uh, gross and bizarre interaction with the doctor, um, she she heads over. Sorry, she um, she heads home. And this is when uh, Don's weird brother, Brad, clearly has a thing for her, uh, but he has this girlfriend that he's constantly, like, mentally and physically abusing whenever we do see them together. And he's just this complete, as Tammy would say, dude bro, um, although he does have good taste in music. So there's that. But And he has... He has a dog whose kennel is, like, in his room, but it opens up into, I'm guessing, like, the backyard or the side yard or something. I was like, that's pretty cool. But his dog's name is Mother. Um, so that's That a was a heavy-handed little metaphor there. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a whole other issue. But Brad is hilarious. And I just remember when I first saw this, this actor, um, John Hensley, he was in uh, Nip Tuck. And so it was, like, so bizarre seeing him play this role compared to this, like, this whiny little kind of emo kid from Nip Tuck, you know? Um, It was just kind of startling. But I thought he was actually really good in this for being a complete douche. 
Um, yeah, yeah. And having a weird, gross, like, fascination with his sister. Um, and he's always alluding to the fact that she's saving herself for him. And he thinks that whatever this connection is, that she feels it, too, for some reason, even though she clearly has. Well, no- isn't that always how it goes? Isn't that always? Yeah. There's always somebody assuming, some guy assuming that you like them when you don't. You know, you make eye contact, you know, on a serious note. There are people who are totally friggin' batshit bananas. You make eye contact with the man on the street and you don't return the cat call or you don't respond to that. And they believe they have entitlement to your response and your reaction just because you're a woman and they're a man. So, yeah, not to get all psycho misandrist on the film. <laughs> no, well, you're totally, it's totally true. Go ahead, Watson. Oh, well, yeah. Well, and also when we, <laughs> when we learn kind of, you know, it's never outright right said, but we, we pick it up from dialogue exactly. Uh, we'll say the, the method of sexual intercourse that, uh, Brad and Melanie have, uh, consistently. It's like, ah, you've got a childhood trauma there that you're, uh, you don't even know you're, uh, you know, something in the unconscious that is, uh, the reason you're, Having sex this way rather than the other way, we'll just say. <laughs> right. Yes. I, I, oh, you, I YouTube. Because I, I, yeah. he was saving himself for his sister. I thought that. I thought it was the role reversal there. Oh, I, I, I think it's the fear. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. He 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 picked up on something early on in that opening scene, and uh, it it marked him. And now this is the only way that'll do uh, safely. He found a workaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I do feel like whenever he's kind of like romanticizing the thing with his finger for some reason. <laughs> Maybe because he can't fully remember what happened, and it's just, yep. like, that curiosity of wanting to remember. But it's like he can kind of, yeah, remember, but not fully. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah, that's funny. It's just the trauma blocking it out. Um, <laughs> yes, and so she, uh, when she's heading home, too, this is when she starts to see, like, all the police are, you know, they've got Toby's car, and they're going to the lake to investigate uh, and she does see them pull up Toby's body. So it's confirmed that he did not make it out alive. Uh, he drowned. Rightfully so. Um, and then this is when she gets home and we're getting notes of her, her mom is ill. Um, they kind of showed that a little earlier in the movie as well. They, I don't think they ever specifically say what she's ill with, but it's kind of just touched on briefly that she's always basically sick. Um, and her mom's always kind of just trying to, let's not focus on that. You tell me about the young people at school and what you guys are into right now, you know, and she seems very sweet. And I like that we have this relationship of her and Bill so we can actually see like a nice, healthy functioning relationship. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And that she makes the little, like they tell Dawn that they love that she's into this whole promise thing, you know? Um, and they don't really make fun of her, but they do make a little joke about how things were so different when they were growing up. Um, but then they say like, but we wouldn't have any other way. Bill calls her a blessing. So I think the it's nice and kind of crucial for this movie to have that as well. And to have Bill, who's like the only non-gross man in the movie. Um, but yeah, back to her gross brother, Brad, and his girlfriend, Melanie. Um, we get different scenes of them having sex and smoking weed out of a bong. And they're clearly rebels and, you know, the complete opposite of Dawn, basically. Um and she ends up going to her friend Ryan, who we've seen at school before, 
And actually, it's not really, we're not really sure if they're like friend friends, but we already know that he kind of has a crush on her and he's always kind of trying to talk to her. And she's just a nice person, so she responds kindly, you know. But um, he clearly has a crush on her. And um, he tries to come and help her out, and then Brad <laughs> punches him and knocks him out because he's got his machismo man stuff going on and because he's in love with his sister. Uh, but Don actually does end up going over to Ryan's, hell, uh, Ryan, Ryan's house asking him for help because she doesn't know who the hell to talk to about any of this, especially because all of her best friends are in this promise group. Um, and Ryan is clearly not into that, you know, because he was able to rattle off like every name for the vagina when they were in their science class. So she figures she can probably go and talk to him. Um, and so she heads over to his house and he seems like very receptive. He is letting her like take a bath, you know, and being like, I'm coming in, but I'm not looking. And we're like, oh, this is a sweet friend, friend zone guy. How cool that she's got this person. And then this all gets flipped on its head because he gives her a sedative. We assume to like just kind of help calm her nerves at first. But it turns out that he is drugging her so that he can rape her, too. Um and this is another instance where back in the day, people would be like, I don't know if this is necessarily rape uh, when it clearly is. And I think nowadays, at least people can recognize that. Um, and during this scene, it's kind of weird because he's like influencing her to kind of have sex with him. But she like comes to while they're having sex. So she's like clearly out of it. Kind of comes to, and then she kind of goes along with it, but she's drugged, you know, but she's like, oh, yeah, this kind of feels good. And so it's like this kind of very strange scene, you know, because she's technically being raped, but she's also kind of enjoying it. And then there are later scenes of them having like a little more consensual sex, but then it's brought up that uh, he actually had a bet with his friend to see if he could bang the promise spring girl, you know, and the way that he's talking on the phone to his friend and gets Don to say a word so he knows that it's true that he's banging her in that moment is so gross. And before this, he's kind of referring to himself as the hero in the vagina dentata mythology, because now it's clear that if she allows you, you know, if she's consenting, that you're not necessarily going to have your penis bit off. So what do you guys think of this whole scene? I think our character, our friend Ryan here, is the worst character in this film. He is definitely my least favorite, and I think because... All of the other characters are very upfront. They're like, I'm going to make this horrible decision and you're going to know about it. Whereas Ryan's attempts to, you know, get with Don are much more insidious. Like, it's thought out. He's got the freaking box with all of the stuff in it right next yeah. to the bed. Like, he's got a plan. There are action steps. He procured drugs somehow. And then he, the conversation, you, you know, you hit it right on the head. The conversation he has with his friend the morning after is so disgusting. It Like, the veil is lifted on what we thought may have been a well-intentioned person. This whole thing was, like, a ruse in that she doesn't mean anything to him the way that, 
we were set up to believe. You know, we're set up to believe that, yeah, maybe he's still making not the best decisions, but he cares about her and he likes her and he wants to make a good impression. And then he it's all a bet. It's all a ruse. So I think out of all of the characters in this film, he is the absolute worst. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Did you want to chime in, Watson or Susie? Should I take that as a no? (laughs) I do. I'll just let uh, Susie first, if if, if you'd like. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, this is where this, the film was beginning to lose me just a little bit. And I, I agree completely with everything Lonely said. But where the film was losing me here was, you know, this entire sequence of the movie kind of highlights some of the best and worst aspects of the, of the script. You know, for one, like you said, Jessica, we learned that Dawn is actually capable of having a successful sexual encounter, providing that it's based on trust. And I love, I absolutely love that the movie took the time to illustrate that for us. Uh, in this part of the film, you know, we, we also see things leaning back into the B-movie side of things where we do get some sensuality and then some gore later on. These are the strong points that make the scene worth having in the scheme of a horror movie. But then my issue has to do with the fact – and, you know, maybe you could talk me out of this. Uh, that I just – I kind of felt both times I've, I've seen this that, wait, there's no damn way that Dawn is going to this freaking guy in her time of need. Like he's literally – Nobody to her. I mean, I get why she wouldn't want to open up to her mom or dad. That's that's fine. But I mean, what the hell happened to her best friend from the first act of the movie? I mean, uh, and I mean, wouldn't she want to be talking with some of the girls at this point in her in her struggles to find out, hey, we all live in this town with the smokestacks, although no one's acknowledging that. But is anyone else going through this, too? Is it just me? And I was like, who is this guy that she went to him? And so I, I don't know. It's, I guess I, I love what we get from the scene. Ultimately, Um but yeah, when, when I guess when he turns, I used the word cartoonish earlier. He turns into this the worst piece of trash in the film while they're in the middle of sex, by the way. Um, and it was like, geez, like I mean, I, it's, it was. I wasn't sure how believable that was, but I do like, even though uh, once again a little bit of nuance here. As one thing I'm not liking, then another thing I am liking. I liked how I disliked how he was cartoonishly. Uh, archly bad uh all of a sudden but then i do like how even though he has outright betrayed her she didn't actually mean to bite his junk off like her reaction if you watch was regretful surprise she's like oh shit <laughs> like you know she was just mad in the moment he did betray her and deserved it but it's one of these things where i, I love how even then she wasn't like oh yeah well here's this she's just she you know she gets mad while they're you know do, doing that thing while he reveals his true character and then she's surprised as well, maybe a little less than he is, but <laughs> so there was some nuance in the scene. But did you feel did any of you feel like she should or or like the script was doing a good thing by having her go to this guy? Because I've never understood like you're the last person she should be going to. I don't know. It never made sense to me, but I like the scene. Ultimately, I, um, I think it was kind of showing that if Dawn was enjoying herself and was consenting, then the dentata thing wouldn't happen. I think it was just trying to, like, further that plot line. It didn't do it in a great way, but that's what I got out of it. Yeah. I think, Jess, you made a good point on, you know, she doesn't want to talk to her purity ring. I was going to say colleagues. (laughs) Her purity (laughs) ring colleagues. Um, Because she's kind of, she's going through the shame of having this sexual encounter. And then, to your point, Watson... You know, her, why doesn't she talk to any of the other girls in town? She feels like she's a freak because she has this thing going on. Granted, I still think Ryan's character comes out of thin air. I would agree with that. Just like Susie also brought up earlier. Well, where does the abstinence purity ring subtext start? Because 
she has this family who seems to not be affiliated with this abstinence mentality at all, for better or for worse, and then all of a sudden she's in a purity ring club. So where did that come from? Sure. So I think that's another plot hole. It, you know, the two plot holes are how did the heck did she find the abstinence club and how did she find it? Ryan's address? Those oh, two good, good point. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Oh, okay. But yeah, I guess, oh, yeah, if Susie, yeah, good point, Lonely. I think what, what Susie was saying though, yeah, if they want to show us that she is capable of a successful sexual encounter. This is the way to do it. And I do think that's vital to the story, but how they get there is odd. But yeah, you're right. I guess you wouldn't want to talk to the purity people. I hadn't thought of that. You know, um, I just remembered that right before she goes over there, he gives her a ride for some reason. Um, so maybe that's the only reason that he she comes went to, to him. He comes to Purity Ring Club because he's like, oh, Don, you told me you like the Purity Ring people. So now I'm here. <laughs> okay. So must be fun. And then he tries to ask her on a date and she's having this like existential crisis. And she's like, yeah. no. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's the only reason that because he gave her his card. Remember, he had a business card for some reason. So I'm guessing that's how she got his oh. address, I guess. He gave her but a card? That okay. He did when he was dropping her off at home. So I think I that maybe that. she she might have gone to him just because like that was the last person she talked to and he seemed supportive and helpful, you know, okay. and she didn't really have anyone else. But it is kind of weird. I wish there would have been something where like they've always been yeah. like yes. um What's the word uh, when you're childhood. friends with somebody but not real friends? Oh, acquaintances. 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 Yeah, like maybe they always grew up in the same school or something, and they've always kind of known each other. Like that would have been nice because that would have made it make more sense. Yep. If he was like uh, their neighbor, that would have made sense too. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. totally. But yeah, it was weird. It is just like it's just kind of a really weird scene in general because I do like that they're showing that that guy exists too because I've known those guys where you're like oh this is one of my best friends I totally like trust this dude and then they get you in a weird situation and all of a sudden their true colors come out it's like oh okay not a good dude just kidding um well that sucks like way more than if you were a random stranger or somebody I didn't already trust you know what I mean so I well, like that goes to the, the real idea is that most sexual assaults happen with somebody that you know. Yep. It's, yeah. it's usually the vast majority are not strangers. It's not random. More and, morbid and did facts. You say that, and did you say, Lonely, that he was part of the Purity Club too? Did you he goes that? to one of the, he goes to one of the meetings and I think oh. it's more of just of his, you know, 10 things I hate about you. Um, okay. Okay. Plan to, <laughs> you know, yeah. get the girl. Yeah, now yeah, oh, we know yeah. that at that point because yeah, I used to I knew guys like that who who would go to you know, go to churches hoping to find a, you know a nice Christian girl and and not not like you know do any sort of bet stuff or anything like that, but like be like you know these jerks who'd be like, hey, I'm gonna go to church and find uh, one of the church girls, or even when I was older and kind of in my more uh, Seattle Olympia hipster bohemian groups, you'd find those guys who would. Uh, be like, yeah, I'm a male feminist, and then yeah, <laughs> and oh, then, those you know, guys, and then you so find weird. out they get, yeah, they, and then they're just kind of sheep, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, just kind of, you know, just seeing who they can, uh, you know, and now nobody was raping anybody to, to my knowledge. They were just getting girlfriends, and they'd be long term girlfriends. I'm like, how are, how are you, how long are you gonna try to hide this dude? Like, just tell her you don't believe in God, or tell her you don't, you think <laughs> feminism is is bullshit, or something like that. Instead, they just be like pretending to just to get the relationship, and it's just this weird lie that's just like, God, just be. Be honest for fuck's sake. Oh, that is so weird. Yeah. I thought you meant just for the purpose of hooking up. But no, when some you have of them to perpetuate long, the line, that's long term relationships. Like I'd be like, wow, that lasted longer than the relationships I'm really trying to foster here with full honesty and love and caring and trust. And wow, you're lying to her about your beliefs. I don't know. Maybe she maybe she'll convince him, uh 
<laughs> in some way. That's your other. first problem, Watson. Don't be genuine and truthful. Okay. And I'm just okay. All right. You know <laughs> no, what? Please. I got permission. No, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you've talked me into this scene a little more because I like what we get from it. But yeah, I think the the things you've suggested about uh, and we'll come off it here. But yeah, the things you suggested about it being a neighbor or a, a you know, kind of a childhood friend or acquaintance would have made this flow better. But it, yeah, it's it's there. It, it's it's. I mean, ultimately, I mean that scene where he's uh he's gotten his punishment is. I mean, that's 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 why we're here. Yep. And when she leaves, I think that she's kind of more just like when she's like upset about it. I think it's more the fact that she thought she had control over her vagina dentata. And now she realizes, ah, no, I still don't have full control of it, of this power yet. I don't think it was because she felt bad for him. No, no. (laughs) Well, even the way she goes, oh, shit. Yeah. And this is kind of something about her character that's enjoyable in the comedic sense, you know, is that we just kind of see her character like loosen up more and more. Um, And it's just kind of funny to see. I think she does it really well. I think her acting, her performance in this is really good for what this movie is and like seeing her character development. That's just a a personal opinion, I guess. (laughs) I'm with you. Okay, cool. Um, So after this happens, uh, her mom does uh, get taken to the hospital um, because she actually collapses in their home while Brad and his girlfriend Melanie are having sex, like with the door open <laughs> in the room that's attached to whatever room it is that her mom collapsed in. So that was a great scene, I guess. Um, so she's taken to the hospital. And uh, Dawn goes there to see what's going on, and she finds out that her mother has died, um, which is actually a really, really sad scene, uh, very heart-wrenching. And after this happens, Bill is trying to throw Brad out of the house, um, and I don't know if it's because he knows that Bill, that um, that Brad was there and just, like, let this happen and wasn't paying attention or helping, or if he's just, like, done with his shit in general because he sucks. Um, but he, when he goes to talk to Brad and kick him out, he, you know, tries to get into a fight with him. He sticks his dog on him. Um, and I feel like Bill's performance, not Bill's performance, but the character of Bill in the scene is all like you could really see like the pain in his eyes. So that's something I like about this movie too, is that there's certain scenes where it's like, oh, they turn on the acting, acting, and I feel like it's good. Um, what do you guys think about this whole? One thing that always that has confused me about this scene as I reflected back on the film. So Brad has a line where he goes, I loved her, Dad. Like, what do you mean you loved her? Here, They got engaged when you were a child. What do you mean you loved her? Yeah. And he's, like, saying, like, why did you marry her? I was in love with the child. It was it's so strange. So strange. It'd be different if, like, I don't know, they were preteens or something, and they understood the concept of romantic interest when yeah. the engagement happened. That was just one line that I felt was, like, so offbeat, because Brad's character is trying to be like, I have this heart-wrenching problem, Dad. And yeah. It makes no sense. I feel like they did that on purpose just so that his dad could be like, wait, you loved her? Like, you mean, like, the woman who just died, my wife? Like, you loved her like a mother, you know? I thought I thought it was just so that he could be like, have that realization of, oh, <laughs> But yeah, you're right. It is weird and not necessary. But Brad in general is like weird and not necessary. <laughs> yeah, why is he still in that house? 
How did he, like, last so long there? I don't know. I don't understand how he turned out the way he did when the the other three family members are loving and normal. And I don't know why Bill let him get away with Brad being Brad for as long as he did. Uh, So, yeah, it sucks. And I think that they still don't even say how the mom died, did they? Do you guys recall? No, she just died. We just know that she was sick and she died. Um, and then uh, we when we go back to the hospital um, where Dawn is still at, and she uh, she's talking to Melanie, the girlfriend, who's actually in the hospital with Bill after his whole interaction with his son Brad. And Melanie reveals to Dawn tearfully that, um, you know, they were banging and she heard her mom scream and that she told Brad that, you know, like we need to do something. And he told Melanie, you know, to just ignore it. She does this all the time. It's no big deal. And she clearly feels really guilty about not taking action, you know, when she should have. Um, So it's nice to get these little scenes like this throughout the movie. But this is when Dawn decides that she's going to take matters into her own hand and she uh, rides her bike back home and she gets makeup up a little bit <laughs> so that she can prepare to go in and fuck her stepbrother, um, get her revenge. While wearing all white. <laughs> yes, while wearing all white, which I'm sure was intentional. Um, and yeah, this whole scene is just so weird, the way that she's um, seducing him and like Watson had mentioned earlier, he tries to flip her over and get her from behind, and she's not having that. So, uh, and this in this scene, um, she does take control of her power, seemingly. You know what I mean? Like she gets him in position, and then she bites down when she wants to, and we get this prosthetic penis with a, a candy. I read it was made of candy, the piercing. Uh, the Prince Albert piercing was actually made out of candy so that if the dog did eat it, um, the dog would be okay. So I thought that was a fun tidbit. (laughs) So that was also another fun. I love all these penis prosthetics throughout the movie. It's just hilarious. And, um, yeah, it's kind of really gross, creepy scene, but it's just so funny. And we're glad to see Brad get his comeuppance as well. Do you guys have any... Uh, notes that you want to bring up about this scene? Well, they, they mentioned the snake a lot in this movie, and I think this was the scene of, well, snakes can represent transformation and rebirth, and I think this was the scene where Dawn is, like, reborn, and, you know, she she learns that her stepmother, her stepbrother could have saved her mother, and so she starts embracing the teeth. It's almost like, like a I don't know if you anybody else would see this, but I saw it as like a sexual awakening. She mm-hmm. wasn't afraid anymore, and she had the power, and so she flipped the tables. Um, I don't know. It's, it was pretty symbolic to this. I, I just kept trying to bring it back to that snake. Yeah, totally. I don't know if I thought, like, specifically of a sexual awakening, but maybe just, like, taking control of the situation, you know, and just having more autonomy in general and being, like, less afraid of her body in general. Because yeah, so far it seems... Yeah, I yeah, didn't mean, like, a sexual awakening for her, but, like, symbolic of, like, a woman's sexual awakening mm-hmm. as well. So, like, okay, yeah. once you, you know, are in control and you have that power as a woman, I think you can enjoy things a little bit more because you're not there trying to please a man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can do both at the same time, I guess. But yeah, and 
Yeah, and actually, I guess this is the part where <laughs> this is where um, she like releases the penis prosthetic down to the ground. So now I'm trying to remember if she actually did that with the fingers earlier, or if I was thinking of this scene. I might be mixing them up. But either way, it's still still funny. Um, but yeah, he gets and it right before she bites down with her vagina is when Brad remembers all of a sudden, like, what happened to his finger. We see him kind of, like, finally remember what he's been trying to remember all this time, and he gets that look on his face. Uh, great acting in this scene. All the scenes where these guys get their penises bit off, I'm, like, very, very um, satisfied with their screams. They did <laughs> great, great job screaming. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, she leaves him there to bleed to death. And um, she decides she's going to ride off into the sunset on her bicycle now that her mother's, you know, passed away. And she has all these terrible, traumatizing experiences in this town. So she's going off, um, assumingly, to find herself and her new life. And we see that she does get a flat tire and ends up hitchhiking. And she gets picked up by, like, the dirtiest old man uh, <laughs> who's making all these, like, sucking, licking motions and sounds at her in the car when they get to uh, a gas station. Um, <laughs> so gross. And then we just kind of see Don look over at the camera and give us a little wink and smile like, I know what to do. Uh, what do you guys think of this ending? <laughs> Um, I think just going back to the point that Susie made about Dawn's character arc and her transformation, I think this marks the full circle. Like now we started at the beginning of the film as somebody who knows nothing about sex, knows nothing about her body, has a very specific idea of her purpose as a woman. And she goes through this traumatizing journey of discovering her body and discovering herself. And then at the end of the film, it's almost like it's still Dawn, but it's a very different version of Dawn. She's finally at a point where at least I took it as now she has total control over her body, even though she's in this dangerous and, you know, not great situation with this lecherous old man. She holds the power in the situation because we are to believe, obviously, that she mutilates him which is great which is the the ending that we all wanted right that's Watson said it, we, that's why we're here totally <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yep and even if she doesn't mutilate him like she knows that she can and so that at least is comforting to know that she has that weapon in her back pocket <laughs> Watson Susie did you guys want to say anything about this ending mm, Susie please um it was an okay ending I don't think I expected anything else from it yeah <laughs> <laughs> She's going to slither off into the sunset and fight men. I don't know. Yeah. I am hoping that she eventually gets to have a good sexual encounter at some yes. point. Yeah. Well, Jessica, and that, that leads to my thoughts, too, because I'm like, uh, this ending left me with a sour taste in my mouth. Like, you know, on one hand, you know, like you've said, I, you know, we realize that Dawn is discovered within herself in, in, in very literal fashion within herself, that she has the power to defend herself from abuse and turn that around on her would-be attackers. That's great. It's just there are times when you're watching a horror movie, and once the credits start rolling, you just know that if the story continued with our hero, you'd come to find that they're all messed up in the head from all they've gone through. And I can't help but think of this of Dawn. You know, her first sexual encounter is a direct sexual assault where the assailant dies. Her second sexual encounter shouldn't have even been sexual there at the gynecologist. 
So there's two sexual assaults in a row within days of one another. Then the third one is a direct betrayal that results in, you know, some more gore and genital mutilation. And then this fourth one, uh, is straight up homicide, you know, with her brother. And then finally, whatever happens at the, in that car is sure to be a bloody affair. And I guess what I'm getting at is that I can't help but feel horrible for her. Like she starts off as this, just lovely young lady who just wants to keep herself sexually pure. Then when she's assaulted, she takes on that guilt of that experience such that she no longer sees herself as pure. And from there on, every sexual experience she has is marked by violence and trauma. And yeah, there is a, a fun catharsis about her, you know, in a movie like this, about her being able to use sex as a weapon if she has to. But God, I'm just like, gosh, like, you know, in her private moments, you know, she's going to ah, this is just no life for someone. You know, I don't know if she's going to be doing this from now on. Like, you know, Susie was, you know, she'll slither in the sunset. I like that slither in the sunset <laughs> and bite men. Uh, but, you know, she's totally getting caught, too. If she continues with these sorts of, you know, reflexive murders that you know aren't her fault, per se. But, you know, DNA all over the crime scene and all the ones we see in the movie are easily connected to her. So I just I don't know. My heart hurts for Dawn on this Valentine's Day. There's like the empowerment part of it. It's like, all right. Right, you're you'll turn your victimhood around and you know we love to see that but then it's like god but you're gonna be so messed up through it all and i just like you'd said jessica i just hope she can get wherever she ends up she finds that person that in her life that you know just love and trust who you know she never has to use that you know vagina dentata on and it's it's nothing but you know, just consent. The, the, yeah. And and good so, times. Yeah. And a family and all these things. She can leave all this, this trash behind her. I just, I felt bad for her. I don't know. Uh, My counter is two quotes. One is fuck forgiveness. I'll heal in hell. And two <laughs> is I don't need yoga. I need a crowbar. So <laughs> who, who needs well, healing and I, happiness <laughs> when you can white men <laughs> that's great you sure. know what i would have liked though i would have liked if there was a scene of her like masturbating because she didn't even do that you know there was that scene early yeah. on in the movie when she was going to and then like felt ashamed i wish it could have at least ended with her feeling good enough about like masturbating and being able to enjoy something without men even you know what i mean i think that that would have been cool but maybe that's her okay, enjoyment is going to be like Correcting, correcting the men that need to be corrected. There you go. And that fits in more with a horror movie, I guess. So <laughs> the revenge <laughs> aspect of things. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, did you guys want to touch on any other like themes or concepts or anything that came to mind that you didn't get to talk about during the review? I'm good. I'm good. All yep. right. All right. Cool. Well, we'll just go ahead and give our ratings then. We just do one through ten here. Um, so whatever you got, you want to, let's start with Watson. What do you give this? Uh, you know, overall, I do quite enjoy this movie. We're given this, you know, relatively simple, straightforward premise here, yet the script manages to present the viewer with enough clever subtextual and metaphorical imagery to the extent that we find, you know, we're dealing with a much sharper movie than one might initially think. And in that way, the film does a pretty good job showing its work in order to reinforce its underlying themes. You know, uh, Lonely mentioned men, uh, 2022 earlier. That's another one that goes out of its way to you use a lot of imagery from a lot of different sources to reinforce what it's doing ultimately. And, uh, this one does pretty good at that. Uh, additionally, the exploitation B movie style blood and gore and comedic touches keep the film fun and from becoming its own worst enemy. Our leading lady Dawn is played wonderfully by Jess Wexler or Wexler. I don't know how you say her name. She's lovable, sympathetic, and my heart breaks for, her. uh, 
there are some story decisions that I think you helped me work through as we talked. So, because there was one scene that I loved and hated at the same time, and I think you both, uh, uh, lo- or you know, Lonely and uh, Jessica, I think as we talked that over, I think you helped me through that. So, thanks for that. And um, yeah, nice touch with the dramatic irony of the ever-present smokestacks, and even something I did mean to bring up: the oh, uh, we get some Atomic Age mutant creature films thrown in there in the early sections that reflect uh, her own condition. You know, some of those oh, yeah. monster movies we're seeing, and so I, I thought that was a pretty cool touch too uh, that I, I forgot to bring up. So, uh, seven point five out of ten. I, I had a lot of fun revisiting this movie, and I think it'll. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we, do we agree that it's a, a, a splendid Valentine's Day movie? I, I think we do. It's the Valentine's Day episode, so. <laughs> yes, take your power. Fuck yes, them. yes. <laughs> Except you, Watson. You're cool. I'm, yeah, I'm not raping anybody. Hell. <laughs> 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 and if I do, All bite right. it off. Yeah, that's the message to take away from this episode, everybody. <laughs> bite it off. If I do, oh god, I did. Oh jeez. Oh please. Susie, <laughs> yeah. so you what are your uh, closing thoughts and rating? Well, I have haven't seen a film like this since. And I haven't really seen a film like this before. Um, I The only thing I can kind of even compare it to is I spit on your grave and not even really that. This is more about, I think, like self-preservation and morality. I I don't think there was enough comedy in this to displace the content, the like horrific content. So I, I didn't love this film. I did like the acting. And for me, it was a six out of ten. Oh, out of curiosity, what do you think you would have rated it the the first time that you saw it? I would have rated it much higher because I remember okay. really liking it, but then watching it now, it was kind of just gross to me. Not like gross and the gore, just like the content was kind of gross. Yeah, totally. All right, lonely. What do you what do you want to say about this? Your closing thoughts? Yeah, I would say um, horror comedy is not obviously one of my favorite tonal, you know, deliveries in the genre. So it's not going to score particularly competitively in my scale already. But I would say to echo Susie, it did something that hasn't been done in this way before. It, it especially for the time, it was a smart commentary on what it was trying to do. What I think harms the film at this point is that it hasn't aged incredibly well. It is definitely a time capsule of the era it is from. It intensely lacks diversity. There's no diversity all in this cast. And I think, you know, I would love actually if they were ever to reboot this with a more diverse cast, a little bit more of a sharper, more Gen Z kind of wit to it. I think this would be super high performing nowadays, but I am going to follow in my lovely partner in crime's footsteps and I am giving this a six out of 10. All right. That is a really good point. Put a Gen Z filter on this. It probably would do pretty well. Um, yeah, I think that it did strike me as a little more gross this time as well, just like Susie was saying. Um, I think my rating has probably gone down too, but this is kind of something that's, you know, right in my wheelhouse. And yeah, I feel like a lot of the things that kind of disturbed me and that were questionable, you know, thinking of this as like kind of a feminist narrative from a man. Um, I feel like he balanced it out pretty well. I think he probably did as well as he could in 2007. And he did bring to light a lot of instances that people wouldn't even really like consider at the time. So I do think that that I really enjoy that aspect of it. 
Um, but for me, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I probably would have given it like a 9 or a 10 out of 10 the first time I saw it um, because I was, I love the dark comedy and I think that the performances are actually pretty good and I enjoyed the writing and just the little, the little things like the power plant and the snake uh, lecture and things like that. So, um, yeah, it, and it makes me think a lot, you know, and I just like that in general, too, that I've, you know, been thinking about this for the last few days since I watched it and just trying to really deep dive into how I feel about it um, and how I feel that the director and writer did um, as a man taking on this subject. So uh, also, I just wanted to mention that Tammy did give a rating. She didn't really give me her thoughts for the movie, but she told me that it's around a seven for her. Um, so we'll catch up on our next episode and I'll try and remember, um, you know, to ask her just for some basic general thoughts about teeth that we can include at that time. Yeah. So there you have it, everybody. Before we all take off, I just want to get into our monstrous mention really quick. If you guys are familiar, but our monstrous mention is I bring up an artist every episode that works within like the field of horror in one way or another. And so it's just my way to recognize artists because I love art in all its forms, which is why we do this podcast. And tonight it's actually Lonely, blogger, filmstagrammer, and co-host of the Nobody's Horror Podcast. And I did actually, I had Susie as a monstrous mention on a previous episode. And the reason why I did you guys separately instead of like just for your podcast is because you guys do other things outside of the podcast. And so you do your movie and show reviews um, over on your blog, which I love. I was complimenting your site earlier today. I think it looks great. Um, it's really easy to follow. I created my own account on WordPress so that I could like your posts. Not that I'm going to like blog or anything, but I wanted to be able, I want to go in there and like read your stuff and be able to like it. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting me. I really, really appreciate it. I've been a writer for as long as I can remember. And I, being able to write about horror is just one of my, my joys in life. My website is my little baby. I have my background professionally is in communication. So I have a slight obsession with making sure color palettes are perfect and typography is perfect and all of that so my website is a good encapsulation of that so i appreciate it and thank you so much for you know officially following the blog there aren't that many on there a lot of my following is on filmstagram <laughs> right perfect yeah and now that i have it up the website is lonelyhorrorclub.com so everybody go over there and read her reviews they're awesome your website looks awesome it's very like you very stylized and i love that um so and uh, when Susie, when I had her on as a monstrous mention, I was trying to, like, get people to go look at her art, but you can't look at her art anywhere. So <laughs> one day Susie's got to start putting art up again because I liked it a lot and I want to share it. So, but yes, thank you for being our monstrous mention, Lonely, and for your awesome writing. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and let the others plug their stuff, too. And also, I'll just plug this for you since I have you here. Um, <laughs> your Instagram is at Lonely Horror Club as well, right? Yep. I'm Lonely Horror Club everywhere. All okay, the places. Perfect. 
Okay, great. For the nobody's plugs, I'll say that the Instagram is at nobody's horror podcast. And then um, Susie, do you want to go ahead and give your plugs, your personal plugs? Uh, I'm on Instagram at projectile underscore underscore varmint. You guys aren't on Twitter, right? No, no, no. No, we're on thread. No, I'm on threads. I don't believe in Twitter. I ditched it when it made the the transformation to X. So I did too. And I just got on there again, just for the podcast, because I kept waiting for someone to send me a blue sky thing and nobody has. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever someone sends me a blue sky invite, I'll get off of there again. I tried to stick around Twitter now X because Jay is only active on Twitter. And I just feel disconnected from that whole side of reality. But I've I've severed the tie. If we need to find Jay, we need to go to Utah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Watson, go ahead and give us your plugs. Oh, thank you very much. Well, find me over on Horror Movie Weekly with Jay of the Dead uh, and a revolving door of guests. Check me out with Dave Z over on the Watsy Party Horror Show. Uh, you were talking about him on the Suspiria episode, and so I, I I'll have to let him know he he got some uh some nice mentions. Um, and by the way, when, when I after I listened to that episode of this show, I like went home and watched Suspiria like immediately. I was like, I need to get home to watch it. And, oh, that's uh, fine. Thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, definitely head over to newhorrormovies.com to hear Jay of the Dead, Dave Z, me, and a host of other influential horror podcasting buddies on Jay of the Dead's new horror movies. And lastly, since they're here with me now, uh, head over to the Nobody's Horror Podcast and listen to the episodes I did with them this last October – Susie and Lonely designed this grand slam of an A24 film cage match. Just that's epic in scope. And I think, yeah, listeners who want to hear one A24 movie versus another and hear us talk about them, uh, will, will get a kick out of those because it was, that must have taken a whole lot to get done. And, uh, yeah, and thank you, Amateur Destroyer, for having me on for this discussion. You were one of the people out there who supported me early on in my podcasting endeavors back when I was still a solo caster. And, uh, oh, yes, the heart. Yes, yes. And I'm happy to. <laughs> I forgot to tell us that now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I'm happy to give the support right back because you, you and Taminator are doing splendid work. And, you know, I love Tammy and I, I missed her tonight. So hopefully I can, uh, yeah, sneak my way back on here one of these days in the future to actually get to to mix it up with Tammy again because it's been years, uh, a few years since she and I last shared the mic. So, uh, yeah, she was missed yeah. tonight, but this has been my pleasure. So give her my best and uh, thank you very much. Oh, I will. I know she was really bummed too. She misses you. <sighs> Next time we'll have to have you on again. Um, and I'll have everybody's information in our show notes too. So if you're driving and you don't have time to write down all this stuff, just check out the show notes and click on all the links and check everyone out. Uh, and please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast anywhere where podcasts are found. You can join our Horror Through Her Eyes Facebook group page. Email us at horrorthroughhereyes at yahoo.com. Follow us on Instagram and threads at horrorthroughhereyespod with an underscore between each word. Follow us on TikTok at horrorthroughhereyespod. Follow us on Letterboxd at horrorhereyes. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, Horror Through Her Eyes. Uh, other than that, I just wanted to mention that on our next episode, uh, which will be in two weeks, we will be covering uh, Southbound, which is Tammy's pick. Uh, that's an anthology film from 2016, if you guys are not familiar. And you can currently stream that for free on Shudder. Um, so go and watch Southbound. I haven't seen it since it came out, but my memory of it was that I really enjoyed it. And I think everybody probably knows by now that Tammy and I love anthologies in general. 
So I'm really excited to go back and rewatch that. And um, I love ranking segments in an anthology. So that'll be fun to do as well. So I hope you guys will all join us then. Go watch Southbound and we'll catch you on the flippity flop. And as we bid you farewell, we hope you enjoyed your time with us on Horror Through Her Eyes. It's been a blast diving into the depths of dread with you. Until next time, remember to live deliciously. Every rose has its thorns.